everybody. Just before we get underway with the podcast, I want to acknowledge when we get into the podcast that it's going to sound like I'm a little bit in a tin can. For some reason, that is still strange to me. We had some technical glitches with the microphone today, but I also was pretty content with what I was sharing and didn't want to try to redo it because I figured I'd do it really poorly. So I just figured I'd tell you on the front end that it's going to sound kind of wonky on the back end. Not terrible, but just enough. But I can't quite fix it enough on the back end, so I'll tell you on the front end. Anyway, with that, enjoy. Well, hey kids, what is going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 266, and today, oh today, I'm going to try to get myself in trouble by actually challenging a status quo that I think I can defend, and in the end, I hope it kind of opens up our thinking, opens up opens up our, our perspectives and our responsibilities as what an everyday missionary is really all about. In fact, in some strange way, I think even that concept, we're going to kind of broaden out the term a little bit so that we have a better sense of, oh, this is the mission. This is the marching order and everything else. So uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to start this off, but I'm going to start it off by talking about the gospel. All right. And this is one of those things, especially in our evangelical circles, we throw it around. We say it all the time. The good news, the gospel. Have you shared the gospel? We got to preach the gospel. We want to bring the gospel to all people, all places, all times, because it's all part of the great commission. And we have all of this kind of vernacular attached to it, right? But what I was thinking about is uh, the scene from The Princess Bride, where uh, Inigo Montoya is talking with, what's his name? Vassini, I think it is. And he keeps saying, inconceivable. And he's got that kind of little lispy voice there. And finally, uh, like Montoya says, uh, that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. And that's what I was thinking with the gospel. Uh, I, and this is like super brazen of an evangelical pastor to be like, I think we are all using the gospel word wrong, right? But that's kind of what this is about today. But bear with me. I'm going to have to unpack it just a little bit so you know where I'm kind of coming from everything else. Now with this, I'm also going to give you a motivation behind it or Rather, I'm going to share with you what I don't have as a motivator in my own life when it comes to the issue of the gospel. And with that, something that just in general does not motivate my Christian experience or uh, priorities, right? So uh, maybe the simplest way I can put it is quite honestly, and this is just me confessing now. This is, I'm not even saying I'm right. I'm just going to say this is where I come from. Uh, I am not terribly motivated in my Christian life by the afterlife, all right, where I know a lot of people are. They're motivated for the rewards of heaven. They're motivated by the fears of hell. They're motivated by the afterlife. I have just never been one of those people that has been very motivated by either heaven or hell. And I, I don't even have a reasoning for that necessarily. I think part of it is just the way my brain is wired, that that is just enough of an abstract kind of space for me that I do not think in my daily affairs, like, oh, this has this heaven or hell impact, or I'm motivated uh, by the rewards of heaven to do what I do today. That's just not me. But it's kind of connected to how I see the gospel, all right? And what I mean by that is that the gospel, we tend to go, the gospel is this message of Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so when you die, you can go to heaven. That's the gospel. I'm not sure that's quite the gospel. That may be an element of the gospel. I might even go so far as to say it may be a byproduct 
of the gospel. But when it comes to what the gospel message is really designed to do, what it's talking about and what it tells us to do and how we relate to it, I'm going to say that the gospel is a very earth-bound message. It is a very earthly intended message, and it's a message intended to bring flourishing to this space that we live in now, and it's more that idea and identity than it is when I die, I go to heaven, and that's why I believe the gospel, all right? Now, I know I'm right now I'm either losing you and you're already turned off the podcast, or you're like, ooh, Matt is a heretic, I think, today. And how do we now figure out how to confront him on it in a loving way? All right, so I get it. Hopefully, though, you're going to stick with me here for a minute and and you're going to see where I'm getting at to this. Because again, I don't want to take away from the fact that there is this byproduct element, right? Uh, Which more importantly is not so much the byproduct of when I die, I go to heaven, but rather I've entered in a relationship with God and that only increases for all eternity, of which for a temporary time, heaven will be a part of that. I'll get to that maybe in a minute too. But heaven is a temporary thing for all of us. It is not a permanent thing for all of us. And therefore, this is why I don't think heaven is a big idea when it comes to the gospel. I actually think the earth is the big idea when it comes to the gospel. And I think here and now is a really big part of what that is and how we invest into the dynamics of the gospel uh, because it all pertains to things on this planet here and now in our lives as we're living them. So here's where I'm going. And again, maybe that's kind of connected to why then I'm not terribly motivated to be a solid good Christian because I'm going to heaven one day. Even in some ways, and this is just me again, but I don't know if I'm always as motivated like, oh, and I'm going to stand before God one day and give an account for everything I do. I don't even know if that is as strong a motivator in the way I want to express and experience my my faith in this world, right? So now let me see if I can build the blocks. Um, When I think about the gospel itself, Uh, This is an idea, it's born out of the Old Testament, right? But then finds this really potent arrival in the person of Christ. Um, So he comes like in Matthew chapter four, and he's like, hey, I've come to preach the good news, right? And the good news is particularly about the arrival of the kingdom. So it's the gospel of the kingdom, right? So now the gospel isn't about heaven. The gospel is about the kingdom. And the kingdom isn't just some ethereal out in the future dynamic. But when you read through the gospels, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The kingdom's expanding. It starts as a seed. It grows into a tree. It starts as a little bit of leaven and it grows into this big old batch of dough. It's about throwing a net into the waters and pulling out good and bad fish. It's all about seeds and fields that grow with weeds and wheat and tares all mixed together, you know, and everything else. And so it's a very earthly message. I don't mean worldly. I mean, it's a message designed for this planet in this sphere of existence that we live in. And if I go back to when the gospel was first preached, you might say, well, Jesus preached the gospel first. And I would say, well, no, actually, God preached the gospel first, and he preached it to Abraham. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. So he says, God preached the gospel to Abraham first, and you know what the gospel message was? All the nations will be blessed because of what you do. 
all the nations will be blessed because Israel becomes a nation, because Israel becomes sort of the reestablishment of a type of Eden-esque community that's meant to then spread flourishing to the world through the activities of a relationship with God. Now, Israel fails pretty profoundly in that, which is why Jesus comes onto the scene to kind of reboot the project that Israel had failed on. In this sense, Jesus is a truer, better Israel. And this is why you see a lot of linkage to Jesus being a type of Israel, especially when you see Paul in like Romans. Like that's kind of some of his, his footwork that he's doing there. It's kind of highlighting that Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. Jesus is getting the plan back on track to bless the nations through his kingdom. And the kingdom is that good news. So then when you go through the gospels and you're seeing all the stuff that Jesus is articulating about the kingdom that is the gospel or the gospel about the kingdom, it's tangible net effect things that we do in this world. So Sermon on the Mount, you know me, always want to run there. But it's because in my thinking, the Sermon on the Mount is the architecture of how you you embrace and live out this good news. So gospel living is what the kingdom's all about. So the good news is there are people that take God seriously. There are people that take Jesus seriously. There are people where they've heard this good news that he's changing things and they go, I want to be a part of the change. And so how do I do that? How do I help people see the kingdom that is in the world? Because go back to Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus tells those different parables, he point blank tells us the kingdom is the world, right? So when he's talking about uh, the, the the weed and the tares parable, he first tells the story and then they're like, what is that talking about? And he goes, okay, I'll explain it. And he says, the field is the world. And then the one that goes out and plants the seeds is pretty much you could parallel it either to God or to Jesus. He's sharing, hey, there's good news for the world. People are buying into that good news in the world. People are living out the implications of that good news in the world. And eventually at the end, what's harvested out of the world is what is left of those who don't buy into this kingdom expansion and everything else. But it's the the wheat that remains. It's the weeds that are removed, right, in the story. And I don't want to get too much into the, quote, weeds of the story. But what I'm saying is when he tells the story, he grounds it firmly in this existence, not in a future existence, not in some ethereal plane. It's in this existence. And that is actually consistent consistently the message of the Gospels. So the Gospel is not chiefly about how do I get out of this plane and get to heaven? It's actually about how do I bring transformation to this plane of existence? Because that's its primary focus and function. It's not getting out of this. It's changing this, transforming this. This is why we prayed that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the, the temperament, the disposition of you know, God's other plane of existence, which is heaven, right? Where he sort of resides, like the same spirit of community that is in heaven would be the spirit of community that is on earth. Because again, that's what we're praying, that it would arrive on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's why then the Sermon on the Mount becomes such an important component of this, because what it's trying to get at is the only way you change the world in the right direction is you do that stuff that's in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's hard to do in this world, but it's the only thing that will move the needle of this world getting to be where God wants it to be, which is that gospel to Abraham to bless the nations. In other words, God is a part of a reclamation project. 
So uh, if I try to keep it as simple as possible, uh, Eden was meant to be a staging point to then expand flourishing. I, I think sometimes we, we think about Genesis chapter two and we go, the world was perfect and everything was pristine and it was just such perfect symmetry and balance. Just don't touch it. Make it like a museum. It would have been fine. The problem is Adam and Eve touched it and that was the problem. No, actually, it seems that we're, however God had put existence to that point, what his plan was for Eden and Adam and Eve was expansion, right? So that's why he says, um, you know, have dominion, subdue. You don't subdue something that isn't wild, right? You don't have dominion over something that doesn't have, again, sort of a um, uh, an unpredictability to it. So they were meant to domesticate beyond the borders of Eden. When they lose their relationship to God and they decide to accelerate their knowledge out of due season, that 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 task is upended, right? So they 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 lose the 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 capacity to fulfill the mandate. Now to this day we're still doing it. That's the funny part, right? So we got booted out of Eden. We're not expanding the borders of flourishing, but we figured out ways to still manipulate the project in different ways. We do it to this day, right? So we build cities, we tame the environment, we tame animals. We're doing the stuff that is an echo of what Eden was meant to do, but we do it in a type of temperament and aggressiveness that isn't uh, in tandem with God, but it's kind of just like in in the place of our mandate, we're still trying to do it for our own survival, our own development, all those kinds of things. But when we embrace the gospel of the kingdom, we're like, oh, now I want to take on the attitude of what Eden's attitude is meant to be. I still want to bring the flourishing that was meant to be stretched beyond the borders of Eden. I want to bring this spirit of, I'm going to use these words and then I'm going to fix them really fast, of dominion and subdue. But those are now contaminated by our sin. And we think dominion and subdue is about a wrestling match, about aggression, about force, about violence, maybe even sometimes in the name of God. And that, my friends, is where the problem is because Jesus is rolling in and saying, okay, we're going to get back to the Eden mandate. This good news of the kingdom is we're blessing the nations. It's an here on earth kind of thing. But in doing this, we got to use the right tools. And it's not the dominion of men, but it's the dominion of Christ. And the dominion and subduing of Christ is the opposite of the dominion and suing of uh, uh, the dominion and um, subduing of, of how humans do things, which is why the Sermon on the Mount is so awkward, uh, like opposite, upside down and backwards of the way you get stuff done in the real world. In other words, Jesus is giving us the model of, hey, here's how it's meant to be done right to bring real transformation and change to the planet. It means... You turn the other cheek, you go the extra mile when you're persecuted, you do with joy, you give the shirt and the tunic when you're sued, you know, you don't judge, you build your life on proper foundations that give you the resilience to do all of this. You do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Like all this stuff that's like in the Sermon on the Mount and all the illustrative stuff that Jesus lives out in his life where he suffers without a word, where he accepts his persecution with a greater purpose in mind of sacrifice for the sake of, of saving others in essence. That is how we then live out this implication of this good news of the kingdom. That's how we actually change the world. And that's what Jesus wants us to focus on when it comes to what is the gospel. The gospel is God is reclaiming that which is lost and not just individuals. That's kind of what we tend to do more in evangelical circles. We kind of do this 
man-to-man defense, right? We go, the gospel is about saving that person with this message. So they go to heaven and, and I go, that is a, that is at best to me, a byproduct of the thing, but the center of the thing, I would say, just read the gospels, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because the way Mark even starts off his gospel, he goes, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you just reduced Mark down to Jesus died to save a sinner so they can go to heaven, you've you've missed the headline of Mark. Because throughout, it's him bringing flourishing to real lives, right? So people are held in bondage by demons. He releases them. People are sick. He heals them. People are poor and he gives them the ability to, to have food for that day, you know? So in other words, it all becomes incredibly tangible. And that's why I want to keep grounding what I'm saying today in this idea that is incredibly tangible because that's what the good news is. The good news, the news is the kingdom is emerging into the world. And every generation of Christians, we're meant to be like the Boy Scouts. We're leaving it better than we found it. And the way we're leaving it better than we found it is we're living out these kingdom principles that are upside down and backwards. We're living life so connected to the Holy Spirit that his fruit comes out. We're living profoundly motivated by Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, where it's not about me, it's about you. We're thinking about Philippians 2. We're putting others ahead of ourselves. We're thinking about uh, the, the hardest of all the ways to love, which is to love your enemies. And notice how Jesus says to love your enemies. He grounds it in stuff very concrete to do in this life in real ways. He's like, do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. Right? That's that's in this world stuff. And so I can't emphasize enough that when I bring this topic up again, like I said, I, I joked at the beginning where you're like, Matt sounds like a heretic. And I'm hoping by the end, you're like, oh crap, he's right. Actually, I've undersold the gospel. My gospel isn't too big. My gospel has been way too small, you know? And I'm, I have all of this responsibility not to just be a good Christian. So when I die, I can stand before Jesus and not be ashamed. This is why I say I'm not motivated by that. I'm way more motivated by, I want this world to become a better place. I want the kingdom to be felt in every space that I inhabit in this life. I want to do those Sermon on the Mount things because in doing that, it's pushing back the kingdom of darkness. It's bringing forth the kingdom of light, not with some moralism, not with some kind of weird nationalism. It's actually doing it in in uh, like authentic life-on-life space. It's doing it in that space and in those ways because it really believes that God's ambition is to bless the nations and that God's ambition is this planet. And I shouldn't be eager to get off this planet. I should be eager to stay on this planet as long as possible to bring as much change as possible in a multifaceted way because that's what it means to be an everyday missionary, right? An everyday missionary isn't just, how do I get that person saved so when they die, they go to heaven, right? Again, I go back to heaven's a byproducty thing. It's not the primary thing. The primary thing is I'm entering into a covenant, a relationship, a union with God to partner with God and what he is doing on this planet and what he's doing on this planet is rescuing it and not just the people of it, the whole thing of it, right? Because... All of creation was subjected to futility, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. 
Now our message is to partner in the project to undo all of that, which is in part even why when I talk about all of this, it's why Christians should have a lot more uh, of uh, a sensitivity to ecological issues. We should have a sensitivity to farming practices. We should have a sensitivity to how we handle our food supplies. Uh, we should care about poverty. We should care about healthcare for those in need. We should care about all these other things because those are all the ways that God blesses in the Old Testament as a model of the blessing he's going to bring to the nations. When you look at like Deuteronomy 28 and you see this is the blessing of God. It's healthy crops. It's flourishing families. It's uh, healthy relationships. It's justice and fairness and equity for all persons, which is why God's like, if you treat the foreigner wrong, you're busted. That's not kingdom. That's not blessing. Uh, if you treat somebody that works for you wrong, that's not justice and equity. If you don't like Moses because of his Cushite wife, you're a racist and that's not good. You know, like all of that stuff is embedded in there. So the Old Testament should be sort of that model we look at when we think about what God is wanting to do in the world. You go, well, what did he want to do with Israel? And he wanted to create an entire, entire flourishing society for that nation to bring flourishing to all nations. And when Jesus rolls in, he's just saying, you know what we said back there? We're still saying it here. It's not going to be now on the back of Israel to accomplish this. It's going to be on the back of every single person that says, sign me up for that. I'm on board. I believe in this thing. You're calling the gospel of the kingdom and you keep talking about the kingdom being on this planet and I'm going to bring flourishing to this planet with everything that I do. And so I'm going to go ahead and now do it your way instead of my way. I'm not going to use the strength of man, the sword, the strength of man, the sword of, of government or whatever else to accomplish these ends which is where, again, this gets off the rails and we get into nationalism, we get into Christian dominionism and these wacky things that I think are really toxic and not actually kingdom-oriented. It's in the name of Jesus doing what I think is sometimes demonic things. But instead it's saying, okay, the only way we can change the planet is to embrace Jesus's principles. And you know what? A lot of us may get mowed down in that process, but that's how it happens. That's how the change happens in part. Because Jesus modeled that. Like, I think sometimes what we're wanting is, right, we want Christianity to flourish but we want to make sure that we have the backstop of force in relationship to that. So I want a Christian society, but I don't want to have to risk persecution to earn that Christian society. So instead, I'm going to try to leverage politicians. I'm going to leverage Second Amendment. I'm going to leverage whatever the mechanism is to ensure that we kind of move it toward a Christian thing, right? That's not Christian at that point. That That's just, that's just again, a a shadow of a concept using unchrist-centered tools to accomplish something allegedly in the name of Christ, which only tarnishes the name of Christ in the end, right? That's going to always be the problem, which is why I want to go back to, again, when he tells us what to do in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, those are the easiest places to see it. I, I actually think it's all throughout the, the New Testament, but those are the easiest, concise places to see it. Um, or when we go to Matthew 25 and he's like, you know, when you did it to the poor and you did it to the imprisoned, you did it, you were doing it to me. Like all of that is the flourishing element that we're meant to bring. And all of that is the implication of this good news for the planet, which is the gospel has brought a kingdom that is alive and well and growing. I think in any given reason, region, maybe it's expanding, contracting. It's kind of, you know, it's like a stock market effect. It's up and down, but it's ultimately trending up. But that then comes down to what we do. Like if you look at like Second Peter, 
he has this weird thing about uh, he encourages us to live, you know, kind of with eyes wide open, so to speak. Um, It's funny, you know, like we talk about the woke culture and people are like, oh, the woke culture is the problem. And I go, I I have all kinds of opinions on that. But the bottom line is you're better to be woke than asleep. right? And and that's what first Peter kind of gets or second Peter rather gets at where he's like, you got to be awake, man. You got to be awake at life. And the more you're awake and by awake, he means you actually own the principles of the kingdom. You're living the principles of the kingdom. You're not getting contaminated by the principles of the world in the name of Christ. You're not getting contaminated by, by force and by control and by power to try to anchor Christian stuff in the culture, but you're actually doing it like Jesus did it. He goes, not only do you, you move us toward the final day of Christ's return, he says, you hasten that coming. So this is where, again, I'm going to say the more we as everyday missionaries go, I'm going to live like Jesus. I'm not going to live like a conservative evangelical Christian. I'm not going to live like a progressive, you know, um, mainline Christian, like like all the labely things that get in the way, because all of that is then tarnished with power grabs and probably too much political might as opposed to Jesus-like thinking and living and, and reacting, right? But if we can get into this space of goes, I'm going to really own the Jesus thing. I'm going to really pattern my life after his life. Um, I'm going to choose that hard and narrow way because when Jesus talks about that, you know, narrows the way and difficult and all of that, um, my take on that is not, well, that that's the difference between people get saved and people go to hell. Like, I don't think that's at all and not at all the context of what Jesus is talking about there. Um, and I'll give you a proof for a second, but here's what I think the context of that is. It's everything he's just said in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, okay, this is how we change the world. So he rolls into Matthew chapter four and he's like, I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then people go, well, what's the kingdom? If it's good news about the kingdom, what's the kingdom? He's like, okay, let me tell you about the rules of the kingdom. Matthew five, six, seven, Sermon on the Mount. And he gets to the end of chapter seven or gets to chapter seven after he's kind of given some principles on the golden rule and ask, seek and knock and everything else. And then do unto others you want them to do unto you. And then he says, this is hard. It's a narrow and difficult way to do five, six, and seven. To live the principles of the kingdom is really, really hard in a world that's going to want to resist that. You're going to want to resort to force instead. You're going to want to fight fire with fire. You're going to want to go eye, eye, tooth, tooth. You know, you don't want to turn the other cheek. You want to slip back into defensive posture. That's the temptation. It's a narrow and difficult way to do kingdom living to change the world, right? And a lot of people aren't going to want to pick it. But that's what he means by that there, not... Few are going to get saved and most are going to go to hell. And that's what he's talking about there. Because that's not even the context of what he's been talking about. That's not really the heart of the message. And so why at the end of it suddenly jam that in there uh, when it wouldn't fit that way, right? The other reason I go, I don't think it's about very few get saved and most everybody else goes to hell is because fast forward to Revelation and when they're counting heads at the end, nobody can count it. There's too many people. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's too vast. It's too big, right? So all the more, what it's showing is the kingdom succeeds. The mission succeeds. When God says, I'm going to bless the world through you, Abraham, he's not saying, I hope, right? He's saying like, no, man, I'm going to be relentless in this. It's going to happen, right? When Jesus rolls in and he's like, hey, I didn't come to condemn the world, but I came to save the world, John 3, 16 and 17. He's not like, I hope that's what happens. He's like, this is what's happening, right? So part of this is we need to have a little bit more of like a, like a, I don't know, kind of optimistic view of what this is all about, right? I think when we get all myopic and it's just about the, this message saves that person to go to heaven and that's as far as we go. Again, it's, it's, 
that, that part of it, I kind of go, that's kind of a narrow way of looking. I think it misses the real central theme of the gospel. I think it takes a lot of the, the, the load off of us, which is not good. In other words, you go, all I need to do is get as many out of this category into that category so we can all die and go to heaven. I've done my job. I'm like, that's not partnering with what the gospel is all about because the gospel is, again, all about what? Blessing the nations. God preached to Abraham, reclaiming what was lost, reaccomplishing Eden's mandate, bringing flourishing to all persons, all parties, bringing justice and bringing equity and bringing care and bringing love. And I mean, this is why even in the gospel of Luke, like the way it starts is he's like, Jesus has shown up. He's this little kid and he's going to up and everything, right? Read it. It's not like he's going to rescue people's souls and send them to heaven. It's no, he's upending everything. He's going to bring down the rich. He's going to elevate the poor. He's coming after what? Those who are enslaved, those who are sick, those who are blind, those who are mistreated. That's all earth tangible stuff. And therefore it's why we care about like widows and orphans because we're like, their plight is bad right? We in this world want to bring relief to their plate because we can bring flourishing to an orphan that has no family, a widow that has nobody to take care of her. Again, it's a here and now thing. That's what I love about this. It's a here and now thing, right? Because the planet matters to God. The people of the planet matters to God. The mechanisms that make daily affairs run, those matter to God. This is why he cares about just scales. You know what I mean? It's like, that's practical, man. You know, that's all about, are you ripping somebody off? That's wrong. Don't rip somebody off. We want honesty in our workplaces. We want honesty in our homes. We want honesty with our marriages for the flourishing element of that. And if we're not bringing that, if we're not doing that, if we're not playing by the kingdom rules, we can't bring the kind of flourishing we're talking about. Like sometimes I, I, I get saddened when I hear Christian pundits uh, being concerned about the economy and taxes and everything else, mainly for their own well-being. You know, and I go, well, we should absolutely care about that stuff. But we should care about it, not for my well-being. I should be caring about it for the well-being of my neighbor and certainly for my marginalized neighbor. You know, I mean, if we look at like the history of the black community in the United States, like their their average net wealth is like below the poverty line, you know, and this hails back to hundreds of years ago. We created things as a society back in the day that put people in a particular um, stuck category that to this day, the mass majority have never been able to get out of. And we shouldn't just be like, well, those are my ancestors. I'm not a racist. It's not my fault. It's not my concern. They just need to figure out how to dig out. Well, God would be like, no, you've got part of your community that is suffering that has been really stuck for a number of reasons in a lot of different ways. And how are you trying to figure out how to help that? Because that is bringing flourishing. That is blessing the nations, right? That is actually doing good in this world because that's a kingdom value because the kingdom is about this world again. It's about this world. And when we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is not like a Oh, I pray it and then I dust off my hands because I'm just waiting for God to do the whole thing miraculously one afternoon where he shows up on a big horse and brings a, you know, sword with him and wipes everything out, right? All that apocalyptic imagery of Revelation, we're just waiting around for that. Kind of the news flashes, there's different ways to look at Re Revelation. There's different ways to see how this thing closes out. And what is just as much possible is it only closes out when we're doing our job to the maximal level and the maximum amount of people are touched by that job and the kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, our prayer may also require our hard work, not just our prayers, right? And yet I go, that's cool. 
Because that's what I see modeled throughout the Gospels, right? If Jesus is like, I want you to do life as I did life, just look at how he did life, right? He was not that fixated on the issue of this ethereal place called heaven. He just wasn't. I, I, you can go read it. I certainly challenge you to read it. He just wasn't that fixated on that. It was all about, what are we doing here? What are we doing today? What are we doing now? Right? That's the thing. Because he was introducing us to a kingdom thing that for 2,000 years is still in play. And I think it'll probably be in play for another 2,000 years and 4,000 years. I don't think Jesus is coming back anytime soon. I think we got a lot of runway left personally. That's just me. That's just an opinion, a sidebar kind of thing. But that's kind of where I land in that. But I go, boy, there's a lot of work to do between now and then. There really is, right? Now, it's a quick little sidebar. I'm going to wrap this whole thing up. Um, heaven, right? Because I did kind of start off by saying I'm not motivated by heaven a whole lot. Um, and that isn't to say I don't think heaven's cool, all right? But part of this is we got to remember the storyline. Heaven is temporary. And I know automatically some people are a little confused by that. Um, but in the storyline, here's the way the big story works. God makes a planet. Uh, God populates that planet. Uh, it had a design to produce flourishing beyond the borders of Eden, falls apart. But God's like, I'm not done with the project, right? Because we're moving the project from a garden to a city on that planet. That's the new Jerusalem. So when you go to Revelation 21 and 22, we see there's this city and it comes to dwell where? On earth, right? And who is there in the city? We are. And who is outside of the city? All the nations of the earth, right? All the kings of the nations of the earth come to the new Jerusalem, right? So there is this reality that heaven will touch earth. Heaven will have a relationship to earth. But the big storyline, it's earth, man. It's all earth. God call, calls us to care about this thing that we are bound to covenantally, which is the planet and all the facets of the planet. Again, this is why, again, I go back to we should care about economic practices and farming practices and food practices. And are they are they um, humanitarian or are they cruel? I mean, honestly, all these things do have value to God because God talks about, hey, you treat your animals poorly you should be treated poorly. Like I didn't make that up. You know, and you look at our American slaughterhouses, some of them are really barbaric. And I think God's like, you, you Christians, you care about some of this stuff, right? Because I care about some of this stuff. And so in the story arc then, um, the role of heaven is A, it's the, the separation point between where God is at and what we are doing, though God is always present too, but it's a separating element. And when we die, we temporarily hang out there, right? It's like a, it's like a, it's like a waiting room for us in some ways. And I don't know the dynamics of what that means. Um, you know, Paul says to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. Um, but apparently, we have some kind of corporeal form, but we don't have our bodies as we understand them because that's the resurrection. That's at the end of all things, right? So in the intermediary state, we're in heaven, we're with Jesus. Uh, if I kind of use revelation a little bit as a loose tie, we seem to have a little bit of a knowledge of what's going on on the planet. We seem to be very eager to get the show on the road, so to speak, right? That multitude that nobody can count, right? Cause it's so populated waiting to go back home, right? That's the idea. And then there's the resurrection. Our bodies are rejoined to our, our spirits to dwell on this planet, right? We come back here. And so again, heaven isn't the big idea. Earth is the big idea. The new heaven and new earth is the big idea. And 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 that new one isn't to say the old one was bad. The new one is better. He got rid of the old one and he just did the new one. Even, again, Second Peter with the 
uh, kind of the imagery of the purging by fire of the planet we can look at that a couple of different ways, you know, and, and I think the way to better look at it is it doesn't wipe out the planet as we know it. It expunges from the planet all the things that prevent the flourishing. It removes the decay elements and maintains the flourishing elements. That's a better way to see it because we also see in 1 Corinthians 3 that we, we go through some kind of flame purging thing, right? So when Catholics talk about purgatory, I'm not pitching purgatory, but they have a passage for it. And it's first. Corinthians chapter three. And I think we can certainly look at this and go, okay, for all, I don't know what the, how, how the mechanism will work, but I know that what Paul says is that we will all pass through fire and there are parts of our personality, our disposition, our efforts, our activities or whatever that will be expunged. They will be burned away. This is not meant to be punitive. It's meant to be fully restorative, right? But it'll be burned away. And then we come out this other side and we're still us, but an only flourishing us, not a mixed bag of flourishing decay, sin and righteousness, good and bad. You know, like there's, there's something that goes on and makes us our fullest selves as we were meant to be so that we are a mechanism of pure flourishing. And in the same way, the planet will go through some kind of thing that is removing this decaying element and it just gives it the full potential for flourishing and then the other part of this is for all eternity it just continues to flourish and i don't think that's static right i don't think we go oh so once we get to that everybody it's like retirement you know and nobody does anything cool nothing new ever happens you know all things you, you you're just bored for all eternity that was the 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 good place the tv show the good place kind of ended with well heaven is boring can we just annihilate ourselves because it just gets dull after a while well, no, this is going to be constant expansion, constant um, innovation, constant creativity, endless possibilities, right? So so let's keep that in mind. But let's all keep in mind it's tangible. It's um, connected to this space. And it's a story that started thousands of years ago. And it's a story that still plays out every day when you and I play our part in the story to advance the kingdom of the gospel and that, again, is the stuff that we do day in, day out in all these different ways, caring about all these different things, not for my self-interest, not my self-protection, not for my self-preservation, but for the sake of others, because Jesus did what he did for the sake of me, right? And when I signed up for him, I'm like, okay, it's not about me anymore. Now it's about you. And what do you want me to do? He's like, I want you to go do this for other people, particularly the ones that hate you, particularly the ones that want to bring you to the ground, particularly for your enemies. Man, that's the place where we're going to make real differences. Real differences are made there, right? This is why we should want to retire our squabbles and our pet peeves and, you know, the people that irritate us and the neighbors that won't mow their lawn. So we're kind of pissy at them or whatever. Like, we don't have time for that, man. We got a kingdom to advance, right? We've got principles to live. We got places to change. We got nations to bless. Guess that's what we were invited to do. See, to me, that is the gospel. The gospel is about the kingdom. The kingdom is about the flourishing of the world. We are invited to that cause. And the more we own it, the more we want to live it, the more we want to do it, the more we want to pass it on to the next generation. I think in all of that, that's where we will be very effective everyday missionaries.